you want to get out your sermon outline that says the supreme mystery on it. One of the many inserts in your bulletin today. We are in Colossians chapter 1. We're at the very end of the chapter, starting at verse 24. I'll read verses 24 through 29. Please listen carefully as this is God's Word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people you have brought us again to a wonderful book that speaks over and over of the beauty, majesty, and supremacy of Christ. We're often too busy, too preoccupied, too distracted to see Jesus. So this morning we ask that you would refocus our hearts and minds to look at Jesus and the difference he makes for our lives. And to do that, we need your word to be living and active in our lives, sharper than any two-edged sword. We are convinced that this is a deep word, a profound word, Yet it's a word intended for men and women and boys and girls to be built up in the faith. We pray that by your Spirit you would edify and instruct us through this word, that you would correct us and challenge us through this word, and that you would encourage and strengthen us through this word. And as always for this, we need your grace and mercy. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I recently saw a new book uh, called The juvenilization of American Christianity. The juvenilization, I had to practice that, of American Christianity. The book is written by Thomas Bergler, who's an associate professor of ministry and missions at Huntington University in Indiana, where he teaches youth ministry. And the intro to the book goes like this. Pop worship music, falling in love with Jesus, spiritual searching and church hopping, faith-based political activism, seeker-sensitive outreach. These now commonplace elements of American church life all began as innovative ways to reach young people, yet they've gradually become accepted as important parts of a spiritual ideal for all ages. What on earth has happened? In the juvenilization of American Christianity, Dr. Bergler traces the way in which over the last 75 years, youth ministry has breathed new vitality into four major American church traditions, African-American, evangelical, mainline Protestant, and Roman Catholic. And he shows how this juvenilization of churches has led to widespread spiritual immaturity, consumerism, and self-centeredness. 
popularizing a feel-good faith with neither intergenerational community nor theological literacy. He basically says we started with all these good things, but in the end, we don't have good results. Now, none of this is new. For the most part, the church just reflects the society at large. And the juvenilization of America has been well documented for several years now. Almost 10 years ago, the late Chuck Colson, in his radio program and newsletter Breakpoint, wrote the following. When J.M. Barry wrote Peter Pan, the story of a boy who refused to grow up and lived in a place called Neverland, he was writing fiction to amuse children. Today, however, apparently more and more adults are seeking to model themselves after Peter Pan, not wanting to grow up. As Colson reported, a recent article in the New York Times chronicled the emergence of a new cultural trend known variously as Peter Pandemonium, that's an awesome name, or Rejuveniles, is characterized by grown-ups who cultivate juvenile tastes in products and entertainment. Moreover, he wrote, Peter Pandemonium extends beyond the mall. A surprisingly large part of audiences for children's television shows like Teletubbies are young adults. And more people between the ages of 18 and 49 watch the Cartoon Network than watch CNN. Certainly Hollywood and the media have popularized and glorified youth culture. <clears throat> and yet at the root of this madness is a growing lack of personal responsibility. Too many of us adults play the blame game, refusing to accept responsibility for the mistakes we make and what we personally contribute to our failures, especially in the areas of relationships. And if we adults don't accept responsibility and grow up, what can we expect of our kids. And he finishes the article by saying, the reality is that I and only I am responsible for my life. True, I was not responsible for a less than perfect upbringing, but I'm totally responsible for what I become. I may have been a victim in the past, but if I remain one, I'm a willing volunteer. Furthermore, while I'm not responsible for the circumstances that are out of my control, I'm totally responsible for my attitude and for what I can do about my situation. Blaming others for the problems I have and expecting others to resolve my problems for me is a handy excuse to hang on to if I don't want to grow up. End quote. It's pretty serious. There's been a lot written about people in our society refusing to grow up and to take responsibility. And if we see such problems in our society, it's a matter of time until we see them in the church. And if immaturity is a good description of what our society is, social immaturity, then spiritual immaturity is an equally good description of what our churches are. And quite frankly, that's unbiblical. Spiritual immaturity in the church is unbiblical biblical. So what's the answer? What does the Bible tell us? Well, I think the Bible has lots and tons to say on the subject, but a good place to start would be with our passage uh, for this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's a pretty big goal. Nobody gets left out. Three times Paul says everyone, no exceptions. That means that you and I (coughs) and the person sitting next to you and the person you yelled at this morning and the person you looked down upon this morning and the person that you rolled your eyes at this morning and the person you complained about this morning and the person you're trying really hard to avoid this morning and the person you're not listening to this morning, that we may present that person, everyone, mature in Christ. So how do we do that? Well, our passage gives us three ways. And the first way to present that person mature in Christ is by making the Word of God fully known. It's the first blank there actually phrases today. Making the Word of God fully known. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now the first thing, and you can't avoid it, and I would love to avoid it, but the first thing is we're confronted by one of those hard sayings of the Bible. Look at verse 24. He says, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We have to take a few moments to deal with that hard verse. What does Paul mean when he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Paul's in uh, Christ's afflictions? Verse 24 has consistently baffled and bothered Christians for centuries. And understandably so. So first we have to be clear about what Paul is not saying. What Paul, what this text does not mean. Paul is not saying that the redemptive sufferings of Jesus on the cross are deficient or incomplete or need to be supplemented by something that Paul or any of us might supply. And I say that for several reasons. First, everywhere in his epistles, Paul says the opposite. That Christ's death has once for all secured eternal redemption and is perfect and altogether sufficient. Jesus himself said in John 19, it is finished. And every other New Testament author says the same. Just one example among dozens is from Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then fourth, the word translated afflictions is never used in the New Testament of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Whereas the persecution and abuse he experienced uh, on earth were part of his messianic calling and qualified him to serve as our Savior, it was his suffering and death on the cross that satisfied the wrath of God the Father and secured our forgiveness. Some people said that Paul is referring to the afflictions that he's enduring for the sake of Christ. 
in order to glorify him and advance the cause of the kingdom. And that is certainly true. But it does not explain the phrase what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Nor it accounts for how Paul can fill them up. So what does it mean? Some scholars appear to uh, appeal to a typological meaning, which means they think that Paul is thinking of his sufferings as being like those of Christ. Others appeal to an end times or an eschatological view. The idea is there's some uh, definite amount of suffering for Christians that we all have to endure before the end of the age. Both those views have issues. I think a much more common sense approach that fits in well with the rest of Colossians and this whole defense against Jesus plus religion has been well presented by John Piper in his book, Desiring God. The, uh, he explains, Paul's sufferings complete Christ's afflictions not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they're deficient in worth as though they couldn't sufficiently cover the sins of those who believe. What is lacking is that the value, the infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known and trusted in the world. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense of that they're not seen and they're not known and they're not loved among the nations. And they have to be carried out by those who will minister his word. And the minister of the words complete or fill up uh, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions by extending them to others. So what is lacking is not propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God, but presentation. <coughs> in other words, the sufferings of Jesus fully satisfied the wrath of God but there is lacking a personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world. And God answers this lack by calling the people of Christ, people like Paul, to make that personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to everyone else. And in doing that, we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We finish what they were designed for a personal presentation to the people who don't know about them. And the amazing thing in this text is how Paul says that he and others actually do that. He says it is in his flesh. In other words, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. Our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. And since Christ is no longer on the earth, he wants his body, the church, to reveal his suffering in its suffering. And the point that Paul is making is that part of the calling of Christians is to willfully and joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ and the kingdom for the sake of Christ and his body, the church. And in this way, we are seen to be his own. In this way, others see him through us uh, in his love for sinners. In this way, Philippians 3.10, we may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that's just the first part of the sentence. 
It goes on to talk about the stewardship of ministry and the mystery of the gospel. And Paul says this suffering is for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So what end is this suffering, filling up these afflictions, this stewardship from God? To what end? The end is to make the word of God fully known. And I will argue, as I have argued, that God has chosen to use the preaching of the gospel as his primary means of bringing his transforming grace into the lives of people. The obvious question is, why preaching? James Montgomery Boyce, longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, until his death in the year 2000, wrote that the obvious answer is that preaching is a means of conversion. It is by the preaching of the word that God moves in the hearts and lives of people to turn them from sin to Christ. And Paul not only wrote about preaching, he practiced it. Luke described Paul's ministry in this way in Acts 28. From morning till evening he expounded to them. From morning till evening. You guys have it easy. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul then wrote about preaching God's word, practiced it himself, and as a mentor encouraged his protege, Timothy, to preach God's word, 1 Timothy 4. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And Paul is reminding his young protege that the pastor's priority is the proclamation of God's word to God's people in the setting of corporate worship. Now for that to happen, the first thing that has to happen is the authority of Scripture has to be accepted by the preacher. Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says, preaching has a priority among Christians that it does not have among others. And this is because of the very nature of the gospel. The unique authority of Christian preaching comes from the authority of God's revelation, in particular the Bible. He goes on to say Paul was determined to fully carry out his ministry of preaching the word of God. He did so in the face of the tyranny of the practical, the immediate and the seemingly productive because his confidence, after all, was in the word of God. That's what Paul's saying in verse 25. All those things leading up to it are for the purpose to make the word of God fully known. J.I. Packer says, the authentic authority in the pulpit is the authority, not of the preacher's eloquence, experience, or expertise, but of God speaking in Scripture what he says as he explains and applies the text. Making the word of God known, fully known, is the first way to present that person mature in Christ. The second way to present that person mature in Christ is by making the hope of glory fully known. Starting at verse 26, making the hope of glory. It says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the second great truth here. And that's the gospel plan is an open secret. The gospel plan is an open secret. It's a revealed truth. It's something that's been made known by God. Paul speaks of the mystery, the mystery that's been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been made known among the Gentiles. And he's contrasting two ideas of mystery here. Remember, he's, there's false teachers who come to this church, who come to the Colossians. And they're telling them that they have a mystery. They have a secret. They have secret knowledge. They have a secret code that you need to know if you're going to be able to walk faithfully and grow and have a deeper knowledge of God. And Paul says, I have a mystery too, but it's not a secret code. It's not something only a few people know about. This mystery is not mysterious in the sense that only a few of the specially selected, initiated can understand it. He says this mystery is an open secret. For Paul, the mystery is not a secret code. It's something we couldn't have known unless God revealed it. In fact, he gives us a definition of it here in this passage. He says it's something that's been hidden in past ages, but has now been revealed. A mystery that was once concealed, but is now revealed. He says, I've been given a stewardship to preach that mystery, to preach that open secret, to preach that revealed truth to the Gentiles. It's not a secret code or a secret teaching. It's a proclaimed truth that wouldn't have been known unless God had willed to reveal it. And then Paul tells us what that mystery is. Not so secret if he tells you what it is. He says, he's been given this mystery to preach, this open secret, this thing that God has revealed. Well, what is it? He says that our hope is in union with Christ. Look at that phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's saying this revealed secret that I've been commissioned to preach is that Christ is in you, my Gentile friends, and Christ in you is the hope of glory. Now think of what that means. If Christ in you is the hope of glory, what do you do if Christ isn't in you? You who are apart from the promises, apart from the covenant, who have no part in the preaching of the prophets or the hearing of the law of Moses. Remember, he's writing to Gentiles. That Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ has been revealed to you. This is the message the Apostle Paul has. Union with Christ is the only hope of glory. There's no other place you can go to find your fulfillment or your satisfaction. Now, people tend to make two mistakes when it comes to this. They either seek the wrong hope or they seek the right hope in the wrong way. And the only right hope is the hope of glory which is in Christ. And the only way to that hope is through Christ. Paul says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit uniting you to Christ is your only hope. Now this verse from Colossians points us to another wonderful truth about glory and how we get there. And I think it's interesting. He says, you know, he's revealing this mystery. And he states it in seven words, none longer than six letters. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, we tend to think 
that when we get to heaven, it will be some combination of effort between ourselves and God. That works here, not there. It's as if we've misread this verse to say, the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ and you, the hope of glory. And if we read it that way, if we think that we have much of anything to do with it at all, we're dead wrong. We'll be dead and wrong. Paul makes it clear it's Christ in you, not Christ in you. The scholar Roland Hill once said, unless you live in Christ, you are dead to die. Those who come this day, who do not know Christ, who have never trusted in Him, who have never repented, who do not walk with Him, who do not love Him, you are dead to die. There is no hope for you. And the hopes you have are vain and empty and meaningless and will never be fulfilled. The Apostle is making it clear we must seek the right hope in the right way. Christ is the right hope and Christ is the right way. Well, how do you know if you've truly found that hope? How do you know you're truly united with him? He's implanted his love in your heart. That love overflows and you begin to love him. And you love him more than the world. And Christians find their satisfaction in him. And the more a person is satisfied with Christ, the more he will find his satisfaction in satisfying him. If you find it your satisfaction in Christ, it is a mark, it is a sign, it is evidence that the Spirit has united you to Christ. He's brought all of Christ's benefits to bear for you. If you've never trusted in Him, the only hope you have, says the Apostle Paul, is Christ in you. The only hope you have is to cast yourself upon the Lord, to go to Him, to rest in Him, to receive Him as the only way of salvation, to accept Him as God's plan for redeeming you from sin and to trust in Him and to walk with, with Him. And as we do this, we find that Christ has worked faith and repentance in us because we've been united to Him. You want to present that person mature in Christ? The first way is to make the Word of God fully known and the second way is to make the hope of glory fully known. And the third way to present that person mature in Christ is by making the people of Christ fully mature. Making the people of Christ fully mature. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's means of bringing believers to maturity was threefold. Proclamation, warning or admonishment, and teaching. First, he proclaimed Christ. Christ is the beginning and end of his message. The, the great preacher from an earlier century, George Whitfield, said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. Apostle Paul says here, the goal of his preaching of that mystery is that you and I and that person would be mature in Christ. Some versions translate that word mature as perfect or complete. And again, he's saying to the Colossians, my job is to preach that mystery. My goal is to make sure that you are mature in Christ. Why would I have held something back that you need to know to be mature in Christ? That makes no sense. My friends, today there are many 
who would tempt us to go elsewhere other than the Word of God to find the true mystery of spiritual life. And when we're tempted to look elsewhere, when we're tempted to say Jesus isn't enough, when we're tempted by Jesus plus religion, we have to respond by remembering this word. He has given everything we need uh, to be fed, to be built up, and to be mature in Christ in his word and by the ministry of his spirit, and we don't need to look for some addition. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be mature in Christ. He's given us the word of God in order to help us walk in Christ. Second, when the preaching of Christ brought converts, Paul spent time warning them. Warning everyone means he admonished and corrected them. Paul didn't shrink from this unpleasant task of admonishment because he cared about them. Warning or admonishing means to counsel in view of sin and coming judgment. It's the responsibility of every church leader to do this, but it's the responsibility of every Christian if there's sin in the life of the believer. This is what John prayed about a little while ago. We are to come and take responsibility by lovingly and gently admonishing them to turn from their sin. And third, he spent time teaching everyone. And again, the text is emphatic. He mentions everyone three times. Paul proclaimed Christ and admonished and taught everyone because he truly believed that Christ was for everyone. He saw potential for the gospel in every person. And finally, Paul worked hard at this. It says at the very end, he saw ministry as toil, as struggle, as striving. Verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. <coughs> Truth is, nobody can have a biblically authentic ministry without hard work. Paul's language is compelling. It's brutally compelling. The Greek word translated toil is the word um, is used for work which leaves you so weary, so tired, it's as if you've taken a beating. It denotes working to exhaustion. And struggling is an even stronger term than toil. It's the same root word from which we get the English word agony. And it's used for uh, describing someone who is agonizing an athletic event. And this describes the energy of Paul's work. He strained every physical uh, ligament, every moral tendon to present every person mature in Christ. He reminds us of this First Thessalonians. He says, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day. We might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And at the end of this letter, he'll remind us again. He'll talk about Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully approved in all the will of God. I'm convinced that the key verse of this passage, the linchpin verse, is verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But it's the first phrase of this verse that's the true key. Him we proclaim. He's describing the content of his entire ministry. The text is emphatic. Him we proclaim. The hymn of this text is the person whom Paul had just unfolded before him. 
Jesus Christ the Lord. His statement comes on the heels of one of the grandest sections of Scripture in helping us understand Jesus Christ as creator, redeemer, and sustainer, which Jeff Lee capably laid out for you last week. And after explaining Christ, Paul states, Him we proclaim. If you ask the Apostle Paul what he wanted to be known for in his ministry, it wouldn't be that he logged more miles than any of the other apostles. Nor would it be that he wrote more books than any of the other apostles. He wanted to be known as a man who proclaimed Jesus Christ. To the Corinthians, he said the same thing, 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. To the Philippians, even though he was imprisoned in Rome, he wrote his great delight and joy, even in light of those who didn't have good motives who had less than noble in their efforts he said what about them what then only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth christ is proclaimed and in that i rejoice for paul jesus christ the lord is the proclamation he wasn't interested in embracing the latest fads sweeping through theological circles to plug into his preaching. He was never into the self-help strategies popular in our day. He didn't seek to substitute psychology for sound theology concerning Christ. Paul says for all of us, I was made a minister. I was not made a minister of some hypothetical, non-problematic, non-controversial church. I was made a minister of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the body of Christ on earth, a chosen, purchased possession being sanctified even in the present and struggling against the powers of sin and death and evil and darkness. Therefore, Him we proclaim. We preach Christ. We proclaim Him. We focus our message on Christ. We show Christ the mystery of the ages revealed in Scripture in both the Old and New Testaments. We proclaim Him from every opportunity and from every text. And in the final analysis, we, those of us who do this for a living, your pastors, we will only know how faithful we've been when we're in glory. Then, and only then, when we see our Savior face to face and we see all the people to whom we have preached, will we know whether or not our preaching helped to make you mature in Christ. The purpose of this preaching is to see everyone here perfected in Christ, completed in Christ, made mature in Christ, and able to be presented to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To that end, we toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Pray that he makes you mature in Christ. Pray that he makes the word of God fully known in your life, pray that he makes Christ in you the hope of glory true in your life. You really, really need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. This morning I'd like to pray through this passage. Join with me. Lord, we rejoice to suffer for your people and we accept more of Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. You have commissioned us to be servants of the church, to present to your people your word in its fullness, the mystery once hidden, now revealed to the saints. To them you have chosen to make known among the nations 
the glorious riches of this ministry, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Enable us to proclaim Christ. Enable us to warn everyone. Enable us to teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ.